This morning, we're taking a little break from our study of the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And uh, it's easy to make things more complicated than they need to be. Right? Uh, the world is complicated enough as it is without us adding more complication to it. Because when things get complicated, we get exhausted. We sometimes lose interest or give up, right? If something's too hard, too complex. Um, in some cases, that's a good thing. Maybe we didn't need all that complexity in our life anyway. But sometimes we can make something so complex that people lose interest when we really want them to be paying attention. For example, it would be tragic if somebody was trying to understand what Christianity is, what the Christian faith is, and the information and impressions that they were receiving were so complicated and convoluted and even contradictory that the process becomes overwhelming and they just give up and say, well, I guess I'll just never understand what Christianity is all about. Because one person says it's about this and one group talks about it being about that, and some people act like it's about this other thing, and I can't figure it out, so I'll just forget about it. We don't want that to happen. So let's keep it simple. Let's go back to the beginning and focus on the basics. Where can we find a plain statement of what Christianity is all about? And there's more than one place that we could go to in the scriptures, but this morning I want us to focus on Acts chapter 2, because in that chapter we encounter the first Christian sermon. Now I call it the first Christian sermon because it's the first sermon that was preached after Jesus' work was finished. Right? So Jesus preached some sermons, and there's a sense in which we would call those Christian, right? Because they're preached by Christ himself. But this is the first sermon preached by a follower of Jesus after Jesus' work on earth was complete. And it shows us how the church, from the very beginning, summed up what Jesus did and who he was and how people are supposed to respond. So this is one of those places where there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of extra going on. It's just the heart of the Christian faith put simply and plainly so that we understand what it is we're being called upon to believe, who it is we're being called upon to follow, and how it is that we are supposed to respond to Him. So the way this sermon starts is that uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples of Jesus that are gathered in Jerusalem. And uh, you know this part of the story, right? The, there's tongues of fire that come upon uh, over their heads and they're speaking in all these different languages. They're proclaiming the things that God has done. And this uh, commotion gathers a crowd, right? It's the day of Pentecost, which comes uh, 50 days after Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified. So this has been not quite two months since Jesus' death. And all these people gather together, and they're in Jerusalem for Pentecost from all over the Roman Empire. So you've got people in Jerusalem who speak all kinds of different languages and dialects, and they gather together and they say, how is it that these guys from Galilee 
are talking in all the languages that we speak when we're from all kinds of other places. What in the world is going on? How do we explain this? And some people said, ah, they're just drunk. They're just talking crazy talk is all that it is. But Peter stands up and he says, that's not what's going on. Let me explain to you what is going on. What you are witnessing is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel who said that there was coming a day when God would pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And men and women would prophesy and people would dream dreams and all these kinds of things. That's what's happening right now. Now that's just the setup for the sermon. That's not the main point, as we're going to see. But Peter uses that, right? He's, that people's attention have been drawn to the disciples. Peter uses that attention and says, okay, let me explain the first thing that's on your mind, which is what is happening here. And so he does that briefly, and then he takes that attention and he draws it on to what is most important that has happened. And he's going to give us three things. Three things that are at the heart of Christianity. Three things that are at the heart of what all Christians believe. Three things that change people's lives and that have literally changed the world. Right, the first thing Peter draws their attention to is the death of Jesus. In verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, Peter does not spend a whole lot of time on the death of Jesus for this reason. They all knew about it. It just happened like five weeks ago. And anybody who was in Jerusalem probably witnessed it or at least heard about it. These people who have come to Jerusalem have likely heard about it. This is what people are probably still talking about. And so Peter doesn't have to say much about the death of Jesus. But here's what he does say. He starts by saying... God bore witness to you about who Jesus is. And you all know it. You know about His miracles. You know about the things that God was doing through Him. Things that there's no way He could have done unless He was from God. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, acknowledged this when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Peter's saying, you all knew that God was with Jesus. You all knew that God the Father was working through Jesus. You saw his signs. You knew his reputation. God made clear who he was. But that didn't matter to you. You killed him anyway. That same Jesus, you crucified and killed. Now, that was not an accident. And in a real sense, it was not a tragedy in the sense of some unexpected turn of events that uh, takes everything in the wrong direction. Because God planned for this. 
God, it was God's plan for Jesus to die. He was delivered up, Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It did not take God by surprise. It did not throw God for a loop. He didn't have to resort to plan B after people killed Jesus because that was not the plan. It was the plan. And yet, Peter says, that doesn't mean you guys are off the hook. You still crucified and killed the one whom God had sent. You're still guilty. You're still in trouble. You still have something to answer to before God. And not just something, but one of the worst sins imaginable. Now, something that we need to note here is what has happened to Peter. Because the last time we saw Peter talking about Jesus, what was he saying, or one of the last times, what was he saying? When someone said, hey, don't you know that man that they're interrogating in there? Or weren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? What was Peter saying? I don't know that guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not with him. And now, Peter, in the same city where Jesus was killed, the same place where Peter was evidently terrified that he was going to suffer the same fate as Jesus and be put to death, so he denied he even knew him. In the same city, just a few weeks later, Peter stands up in public And not only names the name of Jesus, but tells the crowd of people listening to him that he was sent by God and that they're all guilty of Jesus' death. Where in the world did that boldness come from? What changed for Peter? Two things. One, the Holy Spirit has come upon Peter in a way that he hadn't before. And number two... Jesus came out of the tomb. And together, those two things changed everything for Peter. And that is really the heart of Peter's sermon. So he touches on the death of Jesus. It's significant, it's essential, it's important, but nobody really disagreed about it. Everybody knew that Jesus had died. But then Peter moves on to the resurrection of Jesus, and this is the heart of his sermon. Verse 24, he says... God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All of you know that Jesus died, in other words, but I'm here to tell you, Peter says, that Jesus is now alive. The same God who testified to you about who Jesus is by doing mighty miracles through him That same God raised him up from the dead after you put him to death. He couldn't stay dead. It was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. He is now alive. And here's what Peter says to back that up. He goes to King David in verse 25. He says, for David says concerning him, and then he quotes one of David's psalms, Psalm 16. And it makes me wonder if 
perhaps when Jesus was with the disciples after his resurrection and before he ascended back into heaven, you know, he was with them off and on for 40 days, teaching them and helping them to understand the scriptures. I wonder if Psalm 16 is one of those psalms that Jesus walked Peter and the other disciples through, or if Peter was meditating on this psalm as he was gathered with the other disciples in the upper room just before the Holy Spirit came upon them. I don't know. But anyway, he brings Psalm 16 in, and he says, we all agree that David wrote this psalm, but here's something maybe we haven't thought about before. This psalm is not about David. I don't know how you are, but like when I hear a song that somebody has written, my assumption is that song is about their life, their experience. Now, that's not always true, right? They might be writing about something a friend experienced, right? Or a story that they read or something. We can do the same thing when we read the Psalms. We might think well, everything David says, he's talking mainly about things that have happened to him or that will happen to him. But Peter says, David's not talking about himself in this psalm. So who is he talking about? In the psalm, he says, verse 27 is the the key passage there. Verse 27, David says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And here's what Peter says. That's not true of David. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, did David see corruption? Did his body experience the decay that occurs after death? Yeah, it did. David died, right? Yep. David was buried, right? Yep, his tomb is right here in Jerusalem. We can go see it if we want to. If you want to open it up, whatever's left of him is still left in there. Was he abandoned to Hades? Did he see corruption? Yeah, in the sense of going to the grave and going to the place where people go when they die. Yeah, that's what happened to him. So if he's not talking about himself, who's he talking about? Well, he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet. We don't know anything about David as a prophet. We think about him first as a king, and rightly so. That's what he was. But he was also a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is somebody who God has revealed something to that they then tell the rest of the people. Right? There's someone who speaks for God. That's what David did. Right? He even says himself in one of his songs that's recorded in 2 Samuel 23. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. That's a, that's a prophet. That's what a prophet is. Somebody God speaks through. And that was true of David. So he was a prophet, and Peter says he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He's talking about the promise, the covenant, that God made with David, saying that one of his own descendants would sit on the throne of his kingdom, and that that kingdom would last 
forever. That's a promise God had made to David. And no doubt David spent quite a bit of time thinking about that, and what that promise meant, how God would keep that promise. And so he was a prophet, God spoke through him, he knew God's promise of a descendant of his who would reign on his throne forever. And so verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He knew that the Messiah, the promised Savior King, would come from his line. He knew that God promised that he would sit on his throne forever, that his kingdom would have no end. And so in this psalm, he's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about that one who would come from his line, that holy one God would bring into the world to save his people and reign over his kingdom. And he knew in order for that one to reign forever, he couldn't see corruption or be abandoned to Hades. He would have to live So Peter says he actually was speaking about the resurrection of Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says we've got a psalm by David speaking of a holy one who wouldn't stay in the tomb long enough to be corrupted. And it couldn't have been David himself that he was speaking about. But we know David knew the Messiah would come from his line. And I'm here to tell you that that Messiah has come now. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the promised one. And that prophecy in Psalm 16 came to pass in him because he wasn't abandoned to Hades. And his body didn't see corruption because me and all these other guys up here with me, we saw him come After he'd come out of the tomb, alive, he's resurrected, and we are here right now to bear witness to that fact. Jesus is alive. David saw it coming. We saw it happen. We're here to tell it to you. God has raised Jesus from the dead. Now, notice how much emphasis... Peter places on the resurrection of Jesus. The death of Jesus got like two verses, right? The whole rest of the sermon so far has been on the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, the resurrection of Jesus is in dispute. When Jesus rose from the dead, remember there was a guard that had been set at the tomb to make sure the disciples didn't come and steal the body. Matthew tells us about this in his gospel. And so after Jesus did rise from the dead, even though there was a guard there, there was an earthquake, the stone rolled away, there were angels, the guards were terrified, and they had to go and tell people, hey, um, you know, here's what happened, what are we going to do? And uh, they said, well, here's the story you're going to tell, right? You're going to tell, tell people that you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole Jesus' body away. There were probably a lot of people that believe that story, even though it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, what are the odds that an entire guard of men would fall asleep on duty? I mean, that's their job. And that while they're sleeping, 
that a group of Jesus' disciples would be able to quietly roll away a, a stone so huge it takes more than one person to move and quietly remove Jesus' body and hide it where? Where nobody's going to find it. And then these guys who a few days ago were scared to death of being associated with Jesus are now going to pretend like he rose from the dead even though they stole his body. They know he's dead. And they're going to stand up and tell everybody he's alive even though they're going to get thrown in jail and some of them are going to be put to death for that story. None of that makes any sense. But that's what a lot of people probably believed. And so Peter is giving them all the evidence he can that that's not what happened. This is something that should not have caught us by surprise, Peter says. David talked about it in the Psalms. You might not believe the word of one person, but I'm here with all of the rest of the disciples of Jesus, and we all saw this. We saw him alive. We witnessed the fact that he is risen from the dead. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm standing up to tell you this. And not only that, but Peter goes on to say that what brought you all together, that strange commotion, that noise, and and these people speaking in all these different languages, that only makes sense if Jesus is not only alive, but that he's ascended back into heaven. Because the third thing Peter tells them, so first is Jesus died, second is Jesus rose, third is that Jesus has ascended back into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. Right? He says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. And then he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, I told you already, Peter is saying, I told you already, what you are witnessing, what you are hearing, is the gift of the Holy Spirit that God promised back through the prophet Joel. You've got all these people prophesying, speaking in different languages, talking about what God has done. What explains that? We know that that kind of thing happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon people. We have evidence of that in the Old Testament. So we know the kind of thing this is. But why is it happening right now? And why is it happening in this place? And why is it happening on this scale? I'll tell you why. Because the Jesus you crucified, God raised from the dead, and exalted Him to His right hand, That same Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what he's done, and that's why we're here, and that's what drew you here, and that's what explains what is going on. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit received from the Son, or from the Father, poured out by the Son, that explains this moment that we are experiencing. Remember, Jesus himself, when uh, John the Baptist was introducing him at the beginning of his ministry, what did John say? I baptize you with water, but this one baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. That's what you are witnessing. 
And he says, David talked about this as well. He quotes Psalm 110 in verse 34 and 35. He says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But David also prophesied about this happening when he says, The Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, who is that? Sit at my right hand. David is talking again about the Messiah, the one who would come from his line, who would be greater than David, so much greater that David would call him Lord, even though David's a king. And God would say to him, to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Well, where's that? That's in heaven. And so he says, that's where Jesus is. David talked about him being risen from the dead. In Psalm 16, he talked about him being uh, taken up to God's right hand in Psalm 110. And so here's the only conclusion that we can draw from that, Peter says, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All the evidence, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, the pouring out of the Spirit resulting in people speaking in different languages, extolling God, the prophecies of Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, all of this evidence makes one thing clear. The man God bore witness to through signs and wonders, whom you put to death, he is the descendant of David, the promised Savior King, God raised him up, raised him up to his right hand even, and he is even now in heaven and has given us of the Holy Spirit. He is Lord. He's the one David called Lord in Psalm 110. He is Christ, meaning he's the Messiah. He's the one promised all through the Old Testament that we've been waiting for. It's him, and you killed him. Now, Peter didn't even have to tell people that they needed to respond to that information. He didn't have to call for a response. They knew. Verse 37, uh, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What is that? It's conviction. Have you ever been cut to the heart before? When all of a sudden... It dawns on you that you have done something wrong, sinful, displeasing to God, and it tears at something inside of you. That's what happened to them. Because they know that what Peter said is true. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. They, They agree with all the evidence He's put forward for them. And so now... They have come to the realization that they are guilty of the blood of Christ. That the person they have been waiting for for hundreds of years, when he finally came, they betrayed him and had him put to death. Is there any way you can come back from a sin like that? Is there any way that you can be redeemed after rebelling against God like that? Disowning Him like that? That's what they want to know. 
So they say, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, is there, is there any way we can respond to this that will make this better? Is there any hope for us? There is. Peter says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Think about what that means. Peter says, even though you are responsible for the death of the Son of God, if you will turn, if you will repent, and you will, instead of denying Jesus, if you will claim the name of Jesus, if you will own Jesus, that's what being baptized is a way of publicly saying, I belong to Jesus. Right? Because he says, you'll be baptized in his name. Right? That means you're saying, I belong to him now. I'm identifying myself with him now. That guy that we put to death here a couple of months ago, I now want to follow him. I now want to belong to him. Peter says, if you repent, if you turn, and you're baptized, you identify with Jesus, this is what you will receive. The forgiveness of your sins. Now, if you ever wonder if God can really forgive the kind of sins that you've committed? Think about this moment right here. Peter just told this crowd that they killed the Messiah. And now he's offering them forgiveness. On very simple terms. Turn and believe. Turn and confess. Turn and own Jesus instead of denying him. And you will be forgiven. You'll receive the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, even though you were involved in the death of God's own Son, He is not going to withhold even His best gifts from you. If you'll turn. It would be one thing for Him to say, if you will repent and believe in Jesus, God will forgive you, but... From now on, people are going to remember you as the people who put Jesus to death and you're going to be, you know, you'll be in, but like on the outskirts. You'll be barely in. And so you you don't get the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's only for the really holy people who've been faithful from the beginning. You could imagine him saying something like that. That's the kind of thing that we're tempted to say to people sometimes. That's not what Peter said. You get everything. You turn to Jesus. You get not only forgiveness. You get all of God's best gifts. You get the Holy Spirit, God Himself, coming to dwell inside of you. And Luke tells us that thousands of people, 3,000 people, confessed, turned, believed, were baptized that very day in the same place where Jesus had been mocked, spit upon, betrayed, crucified, killed, and buried. In that same place, 3,000 more people said, I believe He's alive. I believe He's the Messiah. I believe He's in heaven at God's right hand. And I now pledge myself to Him. That's what the Christian faith is all about. 
There's a thousand other things that sometimes people try to make it about or that sometimes people confuse it with. There are lots of other important things, but this alone is the main thing. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus ascended back into heaven. And everybody who believes that, who believes Him, who trusts in Him, receives the forgiveness He purchased on the cross and is promised everlasting life, resurrection life. Because Jesus lives and death was not able to hold Him, neither will death be able to hold those who belong to Him. But when He returns, we too will be raised from the dead to live with Him forever. That's the good news. Let's pray.